Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the extent to which the war in Gaza has been detrimental to Ukraine as it tries to repel the Russian invader, while Israel turns a tiny strip of land into rubble. Joining us to discuss the U.S. priority of helping Israel over Ukraine as artillery shells are diverted to Israel while Ukraine's stockpile is dangerously low is Simon Schuster. He was with President Zelensky when Hamas first attacked Israel and when Netanyahu told Ukraine's Jewish leader not to visit Israel. A reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin, Simon has previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times and Foreign Policy. His forthcoming book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. We'll discuss his latest article at Time magazine, Vladimir Zelensky's Struggle to Keep Ukraine in the Fight. Then, having dodged two attempts to expel him from Congress, it now appears that George Santos may finally be shown the door following a damning report from the House Ethics Committee. Joining us is Mark Chisano, who has covered George Santos as a columnist and editorial writer at New York Newsday, Long Island's paper of record. He is the youngest editorial writer in the paper's history and a New York City native and fiction writer whose story collection, Marine Park, received a Penn Hemingway Award honorable mention. His new book, just out, is The Fabulist, The Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing and Very American Legend of George Santos. Then finally, with increasing concerns expressed about growing inequality, which most people oppose except the billionaire class, we will examine equality, which everyone agrees is a good thing, but few have explored what equality means. Joining us is Darren McMahon, a professor of history at Dartmouth College, the author of Happiness, A History, and Divine Fury, A History of Genius. His latest book just out is Equality, The History of an Elusive Idea. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev and Berlin. He's previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion that Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. And his latest article at Time magazine is Inside Vladimir Zelensky's Struggle to Keep Ukraine in the Fight. Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Schuster. Thank you. Really nice to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, and... It seems that this war in Gaza between Israel and Hamas has really hurt the effort on the part of Ukraine to drive out the Russian invaders. And I just noticed that Zelensky has just mentioned the fact that the artillery shells that they desperately need are now being diverted to Israel. So that's, I guess, an example of the impact. But the impact seems to be pretty widespread, isn't it, in terms of sort of taking the Ukraine war story off the headlines with all the focus now on Gaza? That's right. Yeah, I I happen to be uh, in Kyiv, in the president's office, um, on on the day of the terrorist attack uh, in in Israel that that, uh, kicked off the war there. Um, on October 7th. And, uh, you know, it was was interesting and and, um, quite dramatic to observe the the reaction inside the president's compound. Um, You know, they were having a series of uh, pretty long crisis meetings to figure out how they would uh, recalibrate their diplomacy, 
uh, and what this war in Israel would mean for the war in Ukraine. Um, you know, they, they've since taken a, a, a series of steps, um, I think, in terms of their messaging. Uh, similarly to President Biden in the United States, uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine has, has been saying that the wars uh, in Ukraine and Israel are similar, that they're fighting a similar enemy. Um, and I think, you know, he's he's been keen to highlight the fact that these are democracies uh, fighting for their freedom, for their sovereignty. Um, you know, in, in terms of the messaging, that's been quite clear. Um, he's also, I remember in those those hours and days after the uh, terrorist attacks in Israel on October 7th, um, President Zelensky and his team were reaching out actively to Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, in, in Israel, um, trying to show solidarity, even offering uh, uh, to visit um, uh, Israel, for President Zelensky to visit Israel. Um, and the response they were getting was, you know, it's, the time is not quite right, you know, uh, please wait a bit. Um, but since then, yeah, we, we've seen what President Zelensky has been afraid of since since the, the beginning of the war in Israel, that attention, the focus uh, of the West, of the international media has shifted to Gaza, shifted to Israel. Um, and as you just said, you know, that is having a material impact on uh, military aid to Ukraine, um, in the, at least in that example that President Zelensky noted with these um, 155 millimeter uh, artillery shells that, that Ukraine desperately needs uh, and that President Zelensky said are really uh, the flow of those shells into Ukraine from the West is really uh, declining uh, precipitously. But doesn't that show what our priorities are or the Biden administration's priorities, which is to support Israel first and Ukraine second? I don't think that the Biden administration has enunciated that kind of uh, you know, list of listing of priorities. They say both are important, both need to be maintained. But I, you know, I also think it's it's a false choice. It, it doesn't have to be one or the other. The, the United States has the resources and the wherewithal to support both. Indeed, it needs to support both. Um, I think it would be a, a, a catastrophe for the world, for Europe, for the United States politically for the Biden administration to say nothing of the people of Ukraine and the leadership of Ukraine if Ukraine were to lose this war. The United States just cannot let that happen. So, so that, that support needs to continue, um, uh, you know, uh, as, as much as, as at all possible. But, but yeah, it, it strains the, the attention span of political leaders in the West. It strains, to some extent, the resources you know, there is a limited supply of these artillery shells. I've talked, you know, for, for a long time, I've, I've heard this from leaders in Ukraine, uh, inc including President Zelensky, that uh, this, this war in Ukraine has shown the limits of uh, the military industrial capacity of the West, that Russia and, and some of its allies, like North Korea, for example, um, have spent more resources building up stockpiles of these kinds of artillery shells and weapons for a, basically a, a large land war, a type of war that I think Europe for many, many years believed it would never need to fight again. Uh, Germany is, is a stark example of a country that allowed its military to basically fall into neglect and disrepair, and it had very little stockpiles to to give the Ukrainians when when push came to shove and, and, and uh, that kind of support became necessary. You know, the Germans looked into their stockpiles and discovered that uh, discovered that they didn't have much uh, much to give. Um, you know, I think in the United States too, right? The, the resources, as, as, as much as the United States spends on, on its military, uh, God knows that's a lot, um, they still have limits in terms of what they can supply in, in specific categories of weapons. These types of artillery shells are an example. Not enough of them apparently are produced uh, per year to satisfy the, the needs of the Ukrainian military, now also the Israeli forces. But in terms of Zelensky's wanting to go to Israel to show solidarity, uh, I think his parents live there, actually, and Netanyahu basically turning him down. Netanyahu's always seemed to have had to prioritize his relationship with Putin over his relationship with Zelensky. Is that how you see it? Yeah, it's a really interesting relationship uh, between Zelensky and uh, Netanyahu, and generally is Israel. Israel's position... Uh, with respect to the war in Ukraine, disappointed a lot of um, uh, people in President Zelensky's team. 
Um, in the beginning, I think they were they were expecting a lot more support from the Israelis. Uh, one specific ask that they had was um, uh, anti-aircraft systems, so um, surface-to-air missiles, uh, air defense systems like the, the the famous Iron Dome system that protects uh, uh, Israel from rocket attacks. Um, Ukraine very much wanted access to these kinds of systems, and, and Israel did not provide it. Um, I'm not such an expert on why Israel made that calculation, but yeah, it, it was concerned with its national security interests, and it felt it, it couldn't um, antagonize Russia. It, it seems it seems that was the, the calculation. For whatever reason, is, Israel was not um, uh, and has not been among the strongest supporters of, of Ukraine militarily, uh, despite quite a bit of pressure, as I understand, from the United States uh, on Israel to be more supportive. Is, Israel uh, took a different path. Um, I think, you know, yeah, as, as the as as countries have shown more or less support um, over the course of the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, it's it's been interesting and, and in some ways heartening, in some ways disappointing for President Zelensky and his team to see which countries are taking uh, uh, which position. I think Italy, uh, by contrast, um, really uh, was a was a was a pleasant and positive surprise for the Ukrainians. Um, because Italy really stepped up in a way that, that seems surprising because of Italy's longstanding relations with, with the Putin regime and with uh, Italy's dependence on Russian oil and gas, uh, nevertheless stepped up really forcefully to support Ukraine, uh, and Israel has been a, a counterexample. So one of the things that I find a little <laughs> hypocritical, I don't know whether that's the right word, but... Obviously, the Hamas attack on October the 7th was just absolutely gruesome and brutal. Yeah, and yeah. Netanyahu, you know, continually refers to the butchery uh, that, it, that took place against women and children and beheading children and burning families alive. But those kind of, uh, of war crimes have been happening in Ukraine now for over a year. And you covered Butcher and, you know, they've routinely, the Russians are routinely murdering civilians and doing the most hideous things, castrating prisoners, etc. I mean, why do you think that Netanyahu doesn't take a moral stand on that? It's, it's hard to say. Yeah, I, I, I don't have enough expertise or understanding of Israeli politics and, and his, his views um, to, to really have a, have a useful opinion here. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I think it's it's a it's a cold calculation about Israel's position and Russia's position, honestly, in the Middle East. Russia's influence in the Middle East, especially on a country like Syria, uh, you know, which is uh, very much not a friend to Israel in that region. Um, uh, you know, when you look at the complex geopolitics of the Middle East, I think Israel um, saw that uh, it it could not. Uh, antagonize Russia, that it would be too dangerous for for Israel and the balance of power in, inside the in the Middle East with respect to Israel if if Russia became um, an, an enemy of uh, of Israel. So since you were in Kiev recently and met with Zelensky, what do you make of the crossing of the Dnipro River and the bridgehead? that the Ukrainians have. I believe the Russians are really pounding it as much as they can, but it seems to be a pretty wide bridgehead, not necessarily a very deep one. What's your reading on how significant is that crossing of the Dnipro and building that bridgehead? Yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely significant. Um, I, I remember when uh, the city of Kherson, uh, which is right in the area you're talking about, uh, that city was liberated uh, from Russian occupation in November of 2022, so about a year ago, almost exactly. Uh, and I traveled there uh, with President Zelensky uh, two two or three days after the city was liberated, uh, and we were we were there, kind of you know going around and, and talking. And he, I remember talking to him about the idea that the next stage in the war would have to be the crossing of the Dnipro River, because the city of Kherson sits on that river. I wish we had a, a map uh, to, to, show, to show the listeners. Um, but in order to advance further into Russian-occupied territory from the city of Kherson uh, to the south, the Ukrainians would need to cross that river. And I remember 
you know, talking, I remember distinctly talking to President Zelensky about how difficult and, and terrifying that kind of operation would be. You know, you have to imagine uh, sending military forces across a very wide river um, under uh, what was sure to be a barrage of Russian artillery and machine gun fire. It's, it's a horrifying military operation to undertake. Um, at the time, a year ago, when we talked about it, President Zelensky just wasn't sure how it would be possible. Um, but sure enough, you know, in the years since then, the Ukrainians have managed to to assemble the forces and, and to start uh, building a bridgehead. You know, military analysts kind of uh, disagree so far about whether it's it can be called a bridgehead or not. I don't know what the technical definition is there, but but they have crossed that river. They have brought uh, military hardware onto the other side where the Russians are. Uh, you know, being forced to to pull back a little bit. There have been indications that the Russians are retreating. How significant that is strategically, it's, it's hard for me to say. You know, I, I talked to a, a senior military officer about that operation um, as as it was unfolding. There there wasn't a lot of certainty that this is this is a game changing um, operation. But I, I think it's it's heartening for the uh, Ukrainian people and, and military morale as well to see that. This kind of progress is being made. If, if, if you imagine how difficult that operation is, it's, it's quite striking that it's even a, a partly successful. But are they taking heavy casualties and, and have they been able to move heavy equipment across? It's a big, wide river, and they're mostly been going across in little, little, you know, what, six or seven men rafts. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I've, I've seen some uh, indications that there, there have been amphibious uh, military vehicles that have been able to, to cross and, and get to the other side, um, as, you know, as well as boats and, and, and infantry and Marines. Um, uh, the casualties certainly are heavy. That is, that is a very difficult uh, you know, operation, as I've said. And, uh, the Ukrainian authorities, since the beginning of the full-scale uh, in Russian invasion, have not released official casualty counts, either for the entire war or for specific operations. Um, those things are a very closely guarded secret, but I think it's safe to say, given the difficulty of the operation, that the casualties are very, very high there, I, I, I would expect. Um, uh, well, that leads me, though, to ask you about Zaluzny, the head of the military's article in The Economist, which has really upset uh, Zelensky, where the head of the Ukrainian military has more or less said we're in a World War One stalemate. Uh, and I think he was obviously also responding to the casualties uh, and finding it really difficult how many uh, Ukrainian lives are being lost. And I understand that they're having a recruiting problem, that a lot of draftees are, are going AWOL. What do you know about that? And is there a split between Zaluzny, the head of the military, and Zelensky? I mean, I think there there have been disagreements between them for sure, um, you know, including on questions of military strategy. Uh, for example, when it came to the city of Bakhmut in eastern Ukraine, you know, one of the bloodiest and, and most horrific uh, uh, centers of the fighting since the invasion began, there was some disagreement between uh, General Zaluzhny and President Zelensky about when to... Uh, essentially withdraw Ukrainian forces, how, how long to continue defending that city uh, from the Russian onslaught, uh, you know, even after the city had essentially been leveled, destroyed, you know, how, how, how long to continue committing Ukrainian troops to that fight. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah, they, they are having a, a recruiting problem, uh, definitely. That's, that's no longer a secret. It's not a secret to anyone you talk to in Ukraine. Everybody knows and has heard the stories. Everybody knows someone who has uh, uh, gone to fight? Um, you know, it's it's, uh, it's a big country, but but it's also a very big war, and and you know, armed forces are are trying to expand as fast as they can. Um, I think the initial uh, uh, surge of energy that led to a mass mobilization of volunteers at the beginning of the invasion uh, has ebbed. Um, now. The Ukrainian government and, and the military are, are forced to uh, draft people, uh, you know, to, to force people to serve, uh, to, to force people to, to carry out their, their military commitments um, to, to the country. And, th and that's never a pretty picture. 
um, you know, if, if you were having to, to recruit and draft people uh, off of public transport or to, you know, serve, serve them notices in their homes, you know, this is now happening across Ukraine. Um, it's, it's a necessity of the war. Um, and uh, General Zaluzhny alluded to it. He's, he said in his interview with The Economist that, um, you know, at this point we have enough men, but, you know, over time that's going to become more and more of a problem. Uh, and recruitment will become more and more important. He said there, there are legislative uh, loopholes that need to be closed that allow people to avoid the draft. Um, so that, that's that's going to be a, an ongoing issue. Um, you know, it, it's it's also an ongoing issue on the Russian side. I mean, I think both both sides have taken enormous losses, um, and you know, it, it's become uh, it's it started to look much more like a war of attrition, where where both sides are are having a hard time um, uh, filling their ranks, filling the military ranks. Um, but you know, in, in Ukraine, that's much more keenly felt, I think partly also because Ukraine is a democracy, uh, even in a state of martial law. Now, um, there's still a great deal of debate, a whole lot more debate and in independent media in Ukraine than in Russia. You know, there's, there's no comparison. Uh, you know, Russia has turned essentially into a totalitarian system. Um, uh, whereas in Ukraine, the, the debate about, you know, um, it, it's just it, it's a democratic country, it's a democratic society. So is, issues of uh, recruitment, issues of uh, how long to fight the war, all these things play out um, in the public debate, um, you know, in, in the media, in, in the streets, at homes. Um, so it, it becomes uh, harder and harder the longer the war uh, goes on. Well, Simon Schuster, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Simon Schuster, who's a reporter for Time magazine based in New York City by way of Moscow, Kiev, and Berlin. He's previously covered Russia and the former Soviet Union for Reuters, the Associated Press, the Moscow Times, and Foreign Policy. And his forthcoming book is The Showman, Inside the Invasion That Shook the World and Made a Leader of Vladimir Zelensky. And his latest article at Time magazine is Inside Vladimir Zelensky's Struggle to Keep Ukraine in the Fight. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how George Santos has dodged two attempts to expel him from Congress, but it now appears that he may finally be shown the door following a damning report from the House Ethics Committee. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mark Cesano, who has covered George Santos as a columnist and editorial writer at New York Newsday, Long Island's paper off record. As a young editorial writer in the paper's history, he's interviewed national leaders like Hillary Clinton, Hakeem Jeffries, and tracked down and rode along with far-right patriot groups and fringe left activists, and traveled from New, York, New Hampshire to Puerto Rico to tell the story of American politics on the ground. A New York City native and fiction writer whose story collection, Marine Park, received a Penn Hemingway Award honorable mention, and his new book, just out is The Fabulist, the lying, hustling, grifting, stealing, and very American legend of George Santos. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Cisano. Thanks so much, Ian. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And Michael Guest, the Republican chairman of the Bipartisan Health Ethics Committee, introduced a resolution on Friday to expel Representative George Santos from the Congress. Now, Santos has already survived two attempts to expel him. So do you think a uh, third time he won't be lucky? You know, there's, it's, it's a bad time to make predictions in politics these days. You know, uh, very rarely is anyone right more than 50 percent of the time. But I would say I've been calling around to different members of Congress and uh, other sources who kind of have a sense of this. And I think the consensus is that this will probably be the end for Santos in Congress. Um, a lot of members of Congress are thinking that the ethics report, which was kind of explosive and found a lot of really crazy new stuff in it, um, the members of Congress are kind of saying, OK, enough is enough. We've sort of uh, given him his chance. 
So is it the, the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, revelations about him spending campaign money on Botox and luxury goods, uh, Ferragamo, vacations, etc.? I think it's a little bit of that. I think that kind of behind the scenes, this is a bit of a political question too, right? Because very little of what was in the report is totally, totally new. You know, it's new details, but the genre of it is similar to what we've known for quite some time. Um, but I think it's getting to the point where members of Congress kind of can't plausibly say, you know, let's wait for due process, let's wait for, um, you know, more information to come out. It's starting to get kind of late in the game. And so I think the political calculus has changed a bit for, for some members. Right, and that's why Jamie Raskin and others voted not to expel him last time, but that rationale has gone away. So Exactly, this sort of due process idea is kind of uh, no good anymore. Right, but Mark Gisano, you had a, an article in the New York Times, George Santos is more dangerous than you know. So elaborate on that. Why is he more dangerous than we, I mean, he's, in a way, he's sort of, ridiculous, he's pathetic, he's embarrassing. But why is he, why is he dangerous? Yeah, I think that, that what, what you just said right there is exactly kind of why I um, wanted to write this piece. Because um, the, the sort of consensus about Santos is that he's very sort of almost goofy, ha- does these kind of ridiculous things, spends money on these kind of wild things. Um, but he's not, you know, hurting anyone as far as we know, other than sort of economically, he does have this long trail of victims. So, you know, he, he's certainly dangerous to his victims, right, his, uh, his financial victims. But beyond that, he um, has this habit that I describe in the piece. Of, I, I call it sort of just throwing ideas out there, which is a line he used uh, on Twitter recently. Um, and he's always kind of just throwing ideas kind of randomly off the top of his head, often kind of conspiratorial ideas or ideas that are kind of out there and very few Americans would really agree with them. For example, as I described, he suggested doing a kind of police state all across the country, um, kind of rounding up an unclear uh, number of people and unclear on exactly what their crime would be um, in response to the Hamas attack on Israel. I guess his, his fear is sort of terrorism in the U.S., which, of course, is a, is a fear that lots of people have. I don't think that, that many people would say, let's go into a police state right now. You know, So th- that is, it's kind of a pattern with him that he suggests these really, really wild things. It's a little bit of a kindred habit to his lying, where he kind of lies inveterately, almost can't stop himself about this background. But he does the same thing with other issues, policy issues. And, you know, I think that's totally fine if you're just a civilian, you're a citizen, you're sitting around your kitchen table or something. But when you're a member of Congress, and you can actually vote on these things, which he does, um, and introduce legislation, which he has tried to do, um, it's a little bit different, a little more dangerous. So if you compare his record, Santos, and the number of times they've tried to boot him out of Congress for the extraordinarily mounting evidence of his mis- <laughs> embezzlement, and I mean, it's just shocking, even even defrauding, what was it, a a pet rescue shop, wasn't it? Was yeah, I mean, he defrauded charity? so many people. He defrauded um, a, a, a U.S. veteran who um, is, uh, you know, was struggling and was at the time homeless, who I spent a lot of time with for the book, actually, kind of told his story at length. It's a really sad story. Um, he was kind of struggling mentally and and was didn't have a house at the time, living with his dog. The dog gets really sick. The dog is kind of the only thing in his life. And Santos, through his charity, kind of, says he's going to save the dog, you know, great story. And he, he doesn't, he doesn't come through with the money and the dog ends up dying. So this is one of those victims that we're talking about before that has kind of, um, you know, been, uh, been sort of victimized by, by the congressman. But in terms of Congress and its behavior, and it's been lately, it's been embarrassing with almost fisticuffs between former Speaker McCarthy and, and one of the Freedom Caucus Congress people who had him ousted, and then That's right. he got Senator Mullen making an absolute ass of himself, wanting to have a fight on the floor of the Senate, and have Bernie Sanders having to intervene and remind him that you're a United States senator. So what I find extraordinary, Mark, is that this guy has dodged so many bullets and he's been around so much longer than he deserves to be in the House, 
And yet, look how quickly the Democrats got rid of Senator Al Franken over something that was, you know, still to this day looks pretty minor. It's a really good point. I mean, there, you know, you can go back in history and find lots of examples of party leaders and the and the parties themselves kind of pushing out members um, that you know, do some sort of misconduct or perceived misconduct, right? Um, and usually that happens when the member um, is politically weak in a way, or there's some sort of um, political reason that the person, you know, can no longer exist in Congress. But you're absolutely right that there's tons of examples of people lasting way shorter <laughs> amount of time than Santos has. And Santos is, the, you know, the allegations against him are immense. It's not just kind of one thing, you know. Um, I tell the story in the book, this is a great story, this um, former representative from Utah, Doug Stringfellow, uh, in, uh, you know, decades ago, post-war, he told these stories about himself as a World War II veteran, um, which he was, he, he fought in World War II, um, but he kind of made up these elaborate stories about, you know, kind of spy missions that he was on, um, really kind of zany stuff, similar to Santos, right? But it's one thing, one story that he told. He gets found out. Pretty quickly, he says, all right, fair enough. I won't run for re-election. Like, I'll drop out. And that is kind of the typical way that it has gone, you know, and for many, many members. Um, and Santos is really just bucking that trend. But how did he get elected in the first place? The Democrat who ran against him seemed to have been really arrogant. He, I think he was a real estate developer or something. He just put up a bunch of yard signs and thought he had it in the bag and the district went for Biden, I think, by eight points. My understanding is that the DCCC didn't do any proper opposition research into Santos. They just uh, hired a couple of interns who missed this extraordinary story that you've written about in your new book. Yeah, it's a fascinating story of what happened in 2022. Um, the candidate was this uh, gentleman, Robert Zimmerman, who's kind of a party establishment figure. He owns a PR firm or, or, you know, kind of runs this PR firm that is very sort of central to Long Island uh, society and politics. Pretty well-known guy. Um, and definitely there was the sense that it was kind of his turn. He'd kind of waited a long time. He'd been in the political universe for a while. And uh, he, I think, at first thought that this was sort of going to be an easy run for him. Um you know, the DCCC report that you mentioned is a fascinating document, and there's a, there's a whole bunch on it in my book, because they both catch so much. It's a really interesting document that you guys can, you know, listeners can look up themselves. Um, it has a lot of Santos's kind of uh, kooky um, things in it, and even some of his scams that later were things that the reporter, that reporters wrote about. Um, so they found a lot of things. The problem was they didn't find that kind of top line thing that would make everyone interested in him and, you know, remember him as this liar. Right. They didn't find out that uh, he was lying about his college degrees, for example. They didn't find out about him passing bad checks in Brazil. And then, you know, even with what they did find, the candidate and anyone else, really, no one was able to kind of form a like full kind of knockout punch against Santos once the race was going on. So um, that was part of the problem, but it's a really fascinating story of the campaign. Um, there were these kind of other political trends in New York that really boosted Santos and that he himself kind of got his hands in. He knew exactly what buttons to press um, to kind of rev people up. And so there was this really extraordinary red wave in New York that he took advantage of and probably wouldn't have run, wouldn't have won if any one of many different things went differently. So... Given your new book, The Fabulist, what's the difference between DeSantis as a fabulist and Donald Trump as a fabulist? Is it just that Trump is more competent? It's a great question. I think that um, Santos uh, sees Trump as a mentor, for sure. He um, kind of got into politics around the time that Trump did, um, that Trump was running for president, certainly uh, seems to admire him, kind of becomes almost a fanboy, Um I put, I, in the book, I have some scenes where he's, you know, kind of following Trump around and really, uh, you know, posting videos of himself with Trump aides and people close to Trump. You know, he's really kind of interested in what Trump is doing as this kind of celebrity figure who's getting into politics. Because that's kind of what Santos had always been interested in. He was a sort of guy who was obsessed with celebrity and fame. And so politics seemed like a good place for him in the 20, post-2016 moment. 
So I think that they have their similarities, certainly. And and Trump, um, I think, paved the way for Santos as someone with no experience in politics, really, who, um, you know, could kind of just bluster his way through. And that is what Santos did as well. Um, I think what's very different about this story, though, is that Trump is kind of a sui generis figure. You know, he is a guy like unlike almost anyone else in U.S. politics and, you know, kind of recent American history. He had this huge platform from years and years on TV. Um, he was a well-known kind of tabloid figure in New York. Um, around the country, he was seen as this great businessman, right, which we now know really wasn't true at all, right, um, given his bankruptcies and certain things like that. But um, he had this aura of, you know, golden invincibility, right? And he was fun. He was funny. He was entertaining. So it's, you know, it's not shocking that that a guy like that would do well in politics at this kind of moment of um, populist anger at um, establishment figures. So it makes sense that he'd win. What's interesting to me about Santos is Santos is a guy with very little going for him. And he kind of pulled himself up, you know, by the proverbial bootstraps, just lying about everything. But he did it all himself. He had no kind of support, no kind of network that would have normally help someone in politics. So it's interesting to me that someone like that could do so well, could follow in Trump's footsteps of lying. And I think that's what's different about the Santos case. But he ends up representing the district in Queens that where, where Trump uh, grew up, right? Yeah, they're both Queens natives, um, hmm. both outer borough guys. Um, very, very, uh, it's an interestingly similar kind of chip on their shoulder um, although, you know, Santos is, I think, is much more reasonable to have a chip on your shoulder, um, given his upbringing versus Donald Trump's, which was uh, much more, much more wealthy than Santos's. Right. So let's talk about the electorate just here in the last couple of minutes. The people that voted for him, yeah, you would have expected, you know, them to be a little more sophisticated. I mean, to some extent, it looks more and more like America is an idiocracy because at least a big chunk of the country believes stupidest stuff, not the least of which is Trump's big lie that he won the election. I mean, he's got a huge number of Republicans believing that. That's a, millions and millions of Americans just believe the stupidest stuff. And then we had this exchange just last week with the director of the FBI being questioned by Representative Clay Higgins, a Republican of Louisiana, who said, you know, what about them... Uh, ghost buses and like <laughs> the FBI director said what? Maybe right. thought it was ghost busters and then he goes on to say that the FBI hired these ghost buses to bus in imposters pretending to be Trump people on January the 6th and they were behind the riot and the insurrection of, on January the 6th I mean it's a straight QAnon stuff so because Santos is in that same party and is in with those characters like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobert, they seem to be his cohorts. Is this an example of what's happening? And, and we talked earlier about the fisticuffs and stuff like that, the lack of decorum. Mm. Is this a part of a broader symptom? It's definitely part of a broader, um, Santos is part of a broader symptom for sure, um, or a broader kind of disease, I guess, in some ways he is the symptom. Um, I, in the book, I call, I call uh, Santos and Bobert and, um, and a couple of others, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a sort of shamelessness caucus, because I think they are sort of different in their um, willingness to be shameless and kind of just get attention um, at all costs. And it's it's I think that some of the stuff that they float out there, um, including QAnon things, is, you know, very dangerous to um, to the to American democracy. Um, one of the first the very first things I well, maybe not the first, but one of the maybe the fourth or fifth thing I wrote about Santos back in 2020 was that he um, was floating QAnon slogans. He was retweeting a bunch of QAnon slogans. And this was kind of early on when people didn't really know QAnon so much. He himself told me, he said, oh, I didn't even know what it was, which who knows if that's true or not, but he was definitely floating them. So this is kind of the murky water that Santos has been swimming in for a long time of kind of conspiracies and uh, very questionable information. In that Times piece, I wrote also about how he, you know, on a podcast once, kind of mused about whether a cordon sanitaire was going to fall on New York, you know, before, right, right as COVID was beginning. Kind of, you know, dangerous stuff for a person who's running for federal office. 
Well, Mark Cesano, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And again, I'll be speaking with Mark Cesano, who has covered George Santos as a columnist and editorial writer at New York's Newsday, Long Island's paper of record. And his new book just out is The Fabulist, The Lying, Hustling, Grifting, Stealing, and Very American Legend of George Santos. We're going to take a brief station break, and with increasing concerns expressed about growing inequality, which most people oppose except the billionaire class, we will examine equality, which everyone agrees is a good thing but few have explored what equality means. You can't hide your lion eyes And your smile is a thin disguise I thought by now you'd realize There ain't no Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Darren McMahon, who is a professor of history at Dartmouth College, the author of Happiness, A History, and Divine Fury, A History of Genius. His latest book just out is Equality, The History of an Elusive Idea. Welcome to Background Briefing, Darren McMahon. Thanks so much, Ian, for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And, and clearly, inequality is an issue before the public, and people are very concerned about it. And it resonates uh, with a lot of people as something bad, a problem that's something bad. But equality is something that I guess is considered good, even though we don't quite know what it means. And I guess until you came along to explain it, right? <laughs> well, let, let's hope. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we live right now in in what some people call an inequality paradigm. We uh, we we see equality all around us. We uh, uh, we study it. We 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 try to get a handle on it, uh, and that draws our attention to inequities and inequalities. Uh, but I think we think less about equality itself, and so that's what I tried to do in this book: is to turn the lens on equality, this elusive idea, and to try to unpack it a bit. So let's then start with the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, in the contemporary context, we have a paradox now where you know, the proliferation of assault weapons in the name of liberty is affecting life itself. But in terms of the first part, which is that all men are created equal, back in July the 4th of 1776, that was not the case, right? Women weren't even mentioned, and not to mention the African slaves. Exactly. So in, in some ways, the, the declaration meant what it said. It was all men. Uh, and as you say, there were no mention of women uh, and, and indigenous people and people of color were sort of factored out. And one thing I like to point out, I think when you, you talk to Americans about the Declaration and that line in particular, they think of it as this noble principle that maybe the founders didn't live up to, but was uh, noble and novel nonetheless. And one of the things I try to show in the book is that actually that very phrase, all men are created equal, is an old one. It circulates in Stoic philosophy amongst the Greeks. It's inscribed into Roman law in the uh, second and third centuries, and then it becomes a kind of a received under, uh, idea under the um, patristic fathers of the early church. So you get Gregory the Great, the um, uh, late sixth century pope, uh, uses that very line, all men are created equal, but he does so in, in the context of a discussion of uh, slavery and uh, hierarchy, and he has no intention of challenging those extant inequalities. And, and really, that's the, the norm down through the centuries. This phrase would be trotted out, uh, while at the same time, there was a kind of uh, easy acceptance of the uh, stark inequalities of the world. And so uh, when we look at, at the Declaration of Independence against that background, I think it seems a much less uh, radical uh, a statement than than maybe it appears to some eyes today. So the, the birthplace of democracy in Athenian Greece, of course, is that the beginning of the hypocrisy that we're talking about? Because even though the democracy... Uh, was the creation of the elite. Everybody had slaves, helots in those days, right? Right, yeah. I mean, Athens is certainly one place uh, for the development of democracy, although I think 
a lot of political scientists today would say that there's nothing sort of uniquely Western or even Greek about the idea. You see democratic behavior in, in many parts of the world. But what I do think is universal, at least what I, I, I show comes up over and over again, is the assertion of equality as a kind of uh, premise of inequality. In other words, uh, one can, can talk about equality among equals uh, with an understanding at the same time that not all are equal. And this is precisely what happens in Athens and other of the uh, Greek city-states where uh, equals are um, considered men, uh, free men uh, of, of birth and uh, uh, of certain uh, property and, 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 and the like. Uh, but as you say, helots, um, resident aliens, women, uh, the enslaved don't figure into the circle of equals. Now, Comparatively speaking, the Athenians went farther than most people uh, of the time in extending citizenship out uh, to tens of thousands of people. And this was in, in many ways novel, but nonetheless, the, the body of citizens with equal, uh, as we would say, rights was an exclusive bunch. And really, equality functions that way and has uh, ever since. Uh, we declare uh, some are equal and that immediately uh, begs the question, well, who who is not equal? And um, those two go together in ways that I think uh, many readers will find surprising. But in the United States today, you could argue in, in Greek terms that we have a democracy, a rule of wealth and property. And there was a recent report by Oxfam that only 85 families control half of the world's wealth. So globally, are, are we going back to a feudal era where you have a thin sliver of aristocracy, and then underneath that you have a sliver of the wealth protection and industry of accountants and lawyers, and then this vast roiling peasantry? It's certainly a worrisome development, and there's there's just no question, as you point out, that uh, inequalities of wealth and income have grown really dramatically uh, in this country as in other uh, countries in the global north since the late 1970s and early uh, early 1980s. And really, we're, we're approaching some of the highest levels of, uh, uh, of inequality in our country's history, uh, analogous to the um, the levels that were reached right before the, the Great Depression or in Europe at the dawn of, uh, of World War One. And um, yes, uh, when uh, so few have so much and then have the power to influence politics and to, to, to make law and to hire lobbyists and to, um, uh, you know, skirt uh, the uh, equality before the law by their you know, ability to hire uh, lawyers and um, legislate uh, indefinitely, it's a it's a worrisome situation, and I think this is precisely uh, at the root of, of so much of the conflict and, and struggle in our country right now. So just to go back to the book that offers a panoramic history of the idea of equality from the dawn of humanity to the present moment, and if you go back to the fierce egalitarianism of the hunter-gatherer people, and after all, we humans share over 98% of our DNA with apes and chimpanzees and gorillas, etc. So what's the connection between the equality amongst, say, the bonobos and uh, and how it's evolved into mankind? Yeah, so I, I spend quite a lot of time in, in my first chapter examining what I call the deep history of equality, and I try to speculate how uh, we may have lived uh, prior to the agricultural revolution uh, amongst our Paleolithic ancestors. And one of the things that paleoanthropologists and others sort of suggest is that, you know, the farther back in time we go, uh, the more like our primate uh, relatives we like we were likely to be. And as you point out, we share uh, a DNA uh, with uh, with our closest relatives, bonobos and chimpanzees and silverback gorillas. Uh, of course, we share uh, DNA with with everything really on the planet, but really this is quite quite stark. And these are intensely hierarchical creatures. Um, and I think one has to accept the fact that human beings uh, share many of those same propensities. And so I developed this idea that part of us we are intensely wired to detect status. Uh, we're uh, intensely conscious of status. We're always sort of maneuvering for status. And so that's that's part of who we are. And if we want to think about equality, we need to kind of take that on board and 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 come to terms with it. But at the same time, and this is what makes human beings uh, unlike, I think, uh, our our close relatives, um, 
uh, although we, we we share certain propensities in this respect, we're intensely pro-social. Uh, we have um, uh, a, a belief in uh, the, the need to care for those uh, around us. Uh, human beings are animals who will come to the rescue of complete strangers. We're intensely cooperative, and we can be intensely cooperative. We have norms of reciprocity uh, and sharing. And so that coexists with uh, this, this sort of status consciousness. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we like a status and and and. In, in ways we like inequality, but at the same time, uh, we rebel against it. We, we, we uh, instinctively uh, seek a kind of fairness. And so that makes human beings a conflicted bunch. Uh, we want equality and we don't. And I think that says a lot about its, its, its subsequent history and the elusivity of the idea itself, because we're, we're constantly striving for something that we, we, we work against at the same time. But going back to inequality that we were talking about a little while ago, and obviously it's gotten worse, particularly uh, under Donald Trump, who ran as a populist, and populism is also based upon a concept of inequality, but it's so easily hijacked as it was in Nazi Germany, for example, and has it being hijacked here in the United States. Donald Trump is, is probably the most selfish and narcissistic person on the planet, and yet he appeals to people, uh, ordinary people, at this populist level. So in your work, have you been able to figure out what it is that drives inequality and why is it that it's almost an inevitable mechanism, perhaps of capitalism itself, that more and more concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer hands? And why then is it tolerated in the way or even celebrated with the, that ridiculous TV show that he did called The Apprentice. Why <laughs> do people support this phony rich guy in the name of making their lives better? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> if I had the answer to that uh, 100%, I maybe would be uh, advising you know, leaders of, of state around the world today. But um, I think one thing that that populists have done so well, and Donald Trump is uh, example of this, is exploit the uh, dissatisfaction and unhappiness, which is a consequence of the inequality. Um, and he's able to kind of channel that anger and resentment, uh, and then, uh, of course, divert it into things that don't address the root problems. And so he takes the anger, uh, and he takes the resentment, and he takes the, the, the symptoms of inequality and then doesn't deal with their sources. Now, there are populists out there on the right who who have begun to talk about the need for um, maybe not outright redistribution, but um, uh, but taking care uh, of their base in ways uh, that they haven't been done. Uh, Trump does this less. Uh, and I think, you know, it's clear that he uses uh, the resentment and then uh, legislates in favor of his uh, his rich uh, cronies. And so it's, you know, uh, it's insult to injury and, and, a, and a double double tragedy. But um, the, the populism is popular uh, today precisely because uh, of the inequality and precisely because uh, of the of, of the rifts and cleavages in our in our in our society. But are we heading towards an even more polarized uh, in unequal society with the model of the future that the techno utopians like Zuckerberg and Musk and Peter Thiel are talking about where will all be hooked on their product, you know, whether it's you're wearing a virtual helmet, you know, living in a, in a virtual world or, you know, having a universal income, living off tokens to in order to sort of go back to that kind of Aldous Huxley idea of, of being on a kind of corporate drug. Yeah. How, do, <laughs> how does that relate to equality? I mean, we'll all be on a universal income, right? That gives us equality. But... That, well, of course, that's one scenario, and and I don't know that it would give us equality, but it might, you know, put a floor in place. Um, but that that's problematic in its own right. Uh, you know, the scenario you you paint is one that I I sort of rehearse in my conclusion, and I think you know that uh, the specter of um, uh, you know fewer and fewer people uh, with more and more uh, control over the uh, algorithms and uh, the knowledge that uh, is used to control us is is real. Um, and as I try to point out, in, in some respects, we've been there before in, in an analog version. Uh, what uh, 
scholars sometimes call the great disequalization um, of the of the third and, and, and second uh, millennia BCE, when you see the rise uh, on earth of God kings, you know, you think think Pharaoh, um, somebody who's uh, literally a god uh, and, and revered as such and controls vast, vast swaths of the population. You see the, um, you know, uh, the incredible stark uh, inequalities in this period. Um, and I think you know we're, we're returning uh, to something like that, or at least that is uh, one of the one of the specters. It's a real uh, possibility, and it's it's concerning. Um, I do think, though, that there are causes uh, for a little bit more optimism, or at least uh, causes for faith in human beings' capacity to reimagine, rethink, and 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 implement. Um, ideas of equality. And uh, one of the things that I try to show in the book is just uh, how stubborn we are in returning to this idea and, and wrestling with it and uh, and seeking to uh, realize it in different ways. And if nothing else, uh, that ought to give us a little bit of hope uh, that we may be able to do so uh, in the future. It's easy to be blinded by our moment, by our current inequality paradigm and think that, you know, there's just no way out of this. But very recently, you know, uh, human beings thought otherwise. Very recently, human beings saw a, a, an arc uh, in history that bent towards justice, and they were working uh, hard to to make that arc bend more. Um, and I think if we can recover some of that confidence uh, and will, uh, we can we can shape society accordingly. But just in the last few minutes, let's touch on the enemies of equality, if that's the right word. Uh, Karl Marx, for example, Lenin called equality a most absurd and stupid prejudice. Yeah, um, you know, I have a chapter on the socialist tradition and and then uh, Marxism in particular, and I think it's something that's very surprising to most people that uh, that Marx and Engels were both intensely critical of ideas of equality, uh, both in their bourgeois liberal version and also in their socialist version. There's really no uh, indication whatsoever that, that either Marx or Engels uh, envisioned material equality as a product of, uh, of, of communism. They were interested in, in, in abolishing class conflict, of course, but they didn't pay a lot of attention to equality itself. And you get a, a taste of that in their, uh, you know, the famous line uh, from each uh, according to their abilities to each according to their needs. And the the uh, implicit understanding here is that people have different abilities and that people have different needs and they will be rewarded and awarded uh, accordingly. And so um, I try to show how there is this hostility towards uh, equality embedded in, in, in Marxism. That's not the case in the, the socialist tradition, the social democratic tradition. And indeed, they both, uh, both Marx and Engels, react pretty strongly against the kind of mainstream uh, uh, socialism in the 19th century. So Marx's famous critique of the Gotha program, the, the kind of party platform of the German Social Democratic Party in the 1870s, uh, calls out this desire to abolish all social and political equality. This is in the platform. Uh, so the socialists want it, but not necessarily Marx and Engels. And of course, uh, there are worse uh, enemies of uh, equality than, than, than Marx and Engels. And of course, in the Soviet Union itself, the the bosses in the Kremlin <laughs> yeah, lived I, the I, life I, of the czars, really. And now, of course, uh, Russia today is run by a regulated criminal oligarchy uh, with the mafia boss Putin in charge. And of course, in China, a communist China, it has, I think, even more stark inequality than the United States, doesn't it? Uh, it's it's approaching it not yet I don't think but uh, mm. it's getting getting there and this is of course another um, phenomena of of our our current world that in in society after society we've seen uh, increasing equality inequality rather uh, internally now there there is a silver lining to this and that in the same period where we've seen these kind of stark inequalities in income and wealth open up. Um, from the from the 80s on, we've actually seen a, a reduction in global inequalities as um, parts of the world like China or India or Vietnam, Indonesia, Brazil, etc., have come online and pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and uh, come closer to the global median. And that's a story that I think we sometimes uh, uh, don't pay enough attention to. Um, but within the societies themselves, we're seeing uh, increasing, increasing polarization. And China is no exception to that general trend. 
Well, we could talk for a lot longer. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. <laughs> and I appreciate your new book, and I highly recommend it. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And again, I may speak with Darren McMahon, who's a professor of history at Dartmouth College and the author of Happiness, A History and Divine Fury, A History of Genius. And his latest book just out is Equality, The History of an Elusive Idea. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.